Greetings, troubled listeners. Welcome back to the Troubled Men podcast. I am Renee Komen, sitting in my safe house on the line with my co-host, the original troubled man for troubled times and future mayor of New Orleans, Mr. Manny Chevrolet. Welcome, Manny. Hey, buddy. What's going on with you? Um, I'm excited to be here. You know, it's uh, something I look forward to all week long. Uh, I want to say, you know, when, when, uh, when the, the plague first hit, uh, everyone was, you know, back in March, everyone was so focused on the news uh, that the podcast listenership overall, not just ours, but all podcasts went down. You would have thought that they would have gone up because people had more free time, but they were so obsessed with, you know, what the, what the fuck was going on that they actually went down. And then they've kind of crept back up. And as of this week, we're at our all-time high of, of uh, you know, downloads over the last 30 days. So, wow. Uh, so yes, exciting. So people are, uh, I guess they're, 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 they're we're, we're entertaining, I guess. Is that what they're saying? Is that they're, they've got yes. nothing else. They've got nothing yes. else. Yes, and so. you know, it's, it's, a, it's a break from that, that grinding, uh, you know, uh, political news and, and, and uh, social unrest. And, you know, while we're all aware of that, you know, we don't have to be fixated on it 24 hours a day. So right. it's kind of a, an unsafe space, so to speak, you know. Well, I, I keep hearing, you know, 2020, the worst year ever. Yeah, that's what <laughs> my I hear. worst year ever, I think. Yeah. You know, the worst year ever. Now, uh, good news today, uh, or, you know, past 24 hours, good news for New Orleans. You know, we, we, uh, we lucked out. We had a storm that really a few days ago I was looking at, you know, we had the previous hurricane, Marco, just kind of uh, dissipated into nothing. You know, at yeah. one point la- last week we were looking, it was, you know, uh, dueling hurricanes coming right at us. Then that first one kind of fell apart. And... The other one kind of started veering off, and I thought, well, it's going to weaken. It's, you know, it's kind of a week two, and I really wasn't paying much attention. The next thing you know, okay, well, it's going right for, for Lake Charles, and now it's gone from a, a week two to a pretty strong four, category four hurricane. Right. Man, if that yeah. thing had, had come up the, the mouth of the Mississippi, we'd be fucked, man. Well, I, I, you know, I was, I was hoping. I keep hoping well, for that. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> I, I get it. I get it. But uh, yeah, man. I want uh, this city yeah. wiped off the face of the earth. Put it out of its misery. Well, okay. You know? Okay. All right. I've well, been hoping well, for yeah. that for years now, but you know, still hasn't right, happened yes. yet. Right. But you right, know what? Well, you know. But you know, I, uh, I I told you I evacuated for Marco. I yes, took yes, off. Went to, I, uh, I went to, out of uh, town go, for Marco. Gompers, California. Yes, you ever been to Gompers? No, no, but I was I was looking it up. Is that what 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 goes on in Gompers, uh, uh, Manny? Uh, a lot of racism and white uh, white privilege. Really, uh, I'd never yeah. heard of it before you mentioned it. Well, I uh, Gompers was always you know I went to it when I was in junior high. That's when busing started. Mm-hmm. And every homeroom, you know, you get to school at eight o'clock, and you'd go to your homeroom, and the principal would go over the loudspeaker, you know, and tell you what's going on today at your school. And it seemed like every day he'd always say, "Oh, and by the way, to the teachers, the bus from Gompers will be late." And all <laughs> of us used to just laugh hysterically. It was like, "Where the fuck is Gompers?" 
Okay. And it was way, I mean, it was like, this is what busing was. It was way, it was like an hour and a half away from my school. Jeez, these, really? Yeah, these kids were being bused to our school because I lived on the west side of L.A. And these kids huh. were, you know, south, south central, south of central L.A., gompers. Huh. And, I wonder uh, why they were coming from so far. Did that? Did, did you? That ever? Uh, it was just all about the busing, you know. Yeah, it okay. was all about uh, the integration and stuff like that. It was the seventies. Man, but to, to 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 ride that far, I mean, you must have to get up at fucking four o'clock in the morning to get on the yeah. bus, right? To, well, that's what Jesus. they didn't realize when they decided the integration. You know, it's like these kids can't get up at five in the morning and be bussed all the way to the Pacific Palisades just because you want integration. It's a you lot know? of commuting, man. It's a lot yeah, of time. It's a lot of commuting. And, uh, anyway, uh, yeah. Gompers is a good place. Uh, yeah. It's a, but you know, while I was, uh, while I did evacuate, I, I, I saw a movie on okay. uh, at my hotel room. Have you seen this movie? Uh, cause it reminded me the lead character was you. Okay, uh, the, uh, <laughs> once again. <laughs> Uncut Gems, have you seen this movie? I did see that movie. Yeah, that, the lead character reminded me so much of you. Hmm, it's kind of a frenetic picture. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot yeah. of action. It's, it's, yeah, it's kind I of mean, takes the lead your breath character, away almost. I kept watching this going, this is Renee, because it was an annoying little Jew who wouldn't <laughs> shut the fuck up, and everyone wants to kick his ass. <laughs> so I, I just saw this and I go, this is Renee. Okay. This is okay, Renee. Well, I'm, 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 I appreciate you thinking of me, man. It you know, warms my heart. But I liked the movie. I thought it was right. pretty good. Okay, yeah, I, I thought it was entertaining. Uh, you know, my, my son said he went and saw it with a bunch of his friends and he liked it, but the other people didn't like it so much. They thought it was, it was too, too intense. It didn't ever let up, you know? Yeah. Yeah, uh, my wife, uh, uh, we got a little annoyed with it at, at times because uh, the guy wouldn't shut the fuck up, you know, <laughs> basically what it was. It was like, just shut the fuck up. You'll be all right, man, you know? Yeah. You know, but uh, anyway, yeah, I saw that. Now I'm back in town. I'm back at work and uh, okay. and uh, crazy things going on the first week at school at the big university. Mm-hmm. There's having, they're having a lot of, uh, uh, I keep getting calls from parents saying that their kid is qu- in quarantine. How can they get their books? You know, there's a lot of kids in quarantine. So really, I don't know what's going to happen with all this. I, I, I still think they're going to have to shut it all down soon, but we'll see. But right. uh, a hilarious thing happened um, during the first week of classes. And this just goes to show you how, you know, for the past four or five years or whatever, everyone is so fucking sensitive. You can't say a fucking thing without someone, you know, calling <laughs> HR on you or, you know, uh-huh. writing, writing this and stuff like this. Well, writing you have this a lot per- of sensitivity training too, right? What's that? I said, you, y'all have a lot of sensitivity training that you're, that you're put through. Well, in, you, in you watch company. these films and stuff like this. But this has nothing to do with me. This is actually something to do with the academia of the school. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. uh, apparently, there's this Tulane law professor who's been teaching there for quite a long time. I'm not going to give his name or anything like that. He's right. been teaching there for a good, I'd say, 10 years. 
and he teaches a, uh, a, a trial technique and evidence class. He's a law school professor. Mm-hmm. And he does lectures you know, to the class, and he uses his own book that's been published by one of the biggest publishers in the country. And, mm-hmm. and it's all about you know, your lawyer and how you, how you deal with yourself in a trial, how you mm-hmm. use your technique, how you use the evidence to your advantage. And his book... And his lectures offer a lot of real stuff, real stuff that's been said in court, uh-huh. that he's taken verbatim from courts, from court hearings and stuff. And okay. a lot of it can be very off-color, prejudice, you know, that kind of stuff. Sounds and apparently, racist, sounds bigoted. What's that? It sounds racist, sounds bigoted, some of it. Yeah, yeah, but it's all stuff that he's taken from actual trials. Okay, right. That right, he's right. lecturing to his students. Right, he's and, not making this up. People have really said this. Yeah, he's not making it up. Right. He's not making it up at all. Anyway, right. he, uh, he's doing his first, it's like the second class, you know, cause, that he's ever you know, spoken to or lectured to for this new year. And he starts doing his lecture and he starts saying this stuff. And it's very off color. And some of it, apparently some of it's, you know, for some people can be offensive. Some people can be humorous. So what happens after his first session with these people, new students, freshman law school students, the, uh, the brass at the university starts getting all these emails from, these law, from his students saying that what he's saying is offensive and blah, 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 this and blah, you know, because they're sensitive to this and all this kind of stuff. But he's mm-hmm. been saying the same lecture for years. Okay. So the brass comes down on him and says, clean up your act. So what happens? This, ha- this happened on Monday. His next class is Wednesday, just yesterday. He's talking to the same people who probably wrote the letters to the brass at the university. And in the middle of his lecture, he says, fuck you, I quit. <laughs> wow. He, wow. Just says, he just says, fuck you, I quit. And now, so now all those hundreds of students that were in his class, I mean, I'm talking a couple hundred kids because he, you know, he lectures in the big halls and stuff like that, don't have uh-huh. a teacher now, don't have a professor to teach them. So they're scrambling to try to fill his position and stuff like that. But I think it's ballsy, man. I think it's beautiful. Yeah. I think, you know what, it's like, you know, no one wrote a letter last year about this, but now we're so sensitive about this shit, you can't right. say anything. I mean, I just called you a, a, you know, a complaining little Jew five minutes ago, and you laughed about it. But you right. know, you go into a classroom, and all of a sudden, people have to like, you know, they, this this generation that, you know, they, yes. <laughs> you know, they can't take a fucking joke. It's so fucking right. pitiful, if you ask me. It's pitiful. Well, those people are going to have a hard time uh, practicing law, I would say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're going to have a hard time being a fucking lawyer if they get so sensitive, you know. But uh, yeah, it, it man, is, you got to. Oh, jeez. It is what it is, you know. We're at I'm at an age where it's like I don't give a fuck anymore. It's like you know what? You can call me anything you want. You know, I'll call you anything I want. It just, if you take it the wrong way, I don't have to be your friend anymore. I, I don't need that to be friends, you know? Sure. You know? Right. It's like well, that you know, time. These, I, go ahead. Go mm-hmm. ahead. No, I was going to say, well, these students, they really, you know, they, they think that they're exercising their, their, 
you know, their power and they, they like that idea, but really they just fuck themselves because here they have this professor that has a lot of experience and is probably a good teacher. I mean, he has experience teaching and, uh, you know, so they, they're, it, it, students for sure didn't used to be like that, you know? <laughs> no, 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 no. They, uh, they, they sure, is, you know, because students were uh, minds to molds for professors and stuff like that. But now uh, I, I think it has to do with just everything in the last few years. The gadgets that we have, the, uh, the, the social media that, you know, everyone is called on an action immediately you know yes you know, and, and, and even, people i was gonna say people feel too empowered almost you know they right and and, and the, the other th thing i wanted to mention about that is it's probably just a handful of students who who took exception to it so meanwhile that handful of students fucked the entire uh, rest of the class yeah exactly yes. exactly who were probably interested in what this guy had to say and this guy's right. been around. He's he's an author, he's an attorney, mm -hmm. you know. And and for him, and I, for him to just say, you know what, fuck it, I'm done. You I, know, I don't need I this like shit it anymore. I, you know, I, I like, like the it. move. I like the yeah. move totally. I, you know, uh, it, it it just goes to show you where we're going. You know, but the problem is, is where we're going is to hell. <laughs> 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 if you believe in hell. You know, right, 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 right. But I wanted to talk about something that happened a few weeks ago. I've been trying to get it on one of our podcasts. Okay. Um, I was uh, at lunch, and my phone rang, and it said "scam likely," mm -hmm. and I answered it. I just I was bored, so I answered it. Right. And, and the message said, "Press one." if you want to pray with somebody. Huh. So I pressed one, and it was pressed two to ignore, but I pressed one, I, and it said, someone will call you, and you'll pray with them very soon. And I hung up, and nothing happened for like a week or two. Nothing. Nothing at all happened. <laughs> and then just about five, six days ago, I get this call. And, I, and it's from some area code, I think, in Tennessee or Kentucky. So I answer it. And it doesn't say scam likely, but I answer it. And it's this guy going, I am here to pray with you. Get on your knees. Grab your Bible and pray with me. And I'm like, okay, this is the call I've been expecting. Right. And I keep hoping it's going to be a live person, but it's, an, it's a recording. Wow. And, and this guy keeps going on and on and on about how how miserable I am and how the Lord can help me and all this kind of stuff. And if I hold on long enough, if I keep listening to him long enough, he will have the answers to all my problems. Hmm. So I keep listening. And thank goodness I'm on like my lunch hour because this guy kept talking for like five minutes, five, ten minutes. And okay. I keep waiting because he keeps saying every like minute, he keeps going, I have your answer. Hold on. I will have your answer. I will have your answer to all your problems. Uh, he's downloading the contents of your phone during this time, right? I, I guess so. I don't know. <laughs> um, so I'm waiting and waiting. And then finally, after 10 minutes, of course, here's what happens. He says, 
the answer to all your problems will cost you nineteen ninety five. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well. And, and that's, that's when I hung up. I was like, "Well, I yeah. was expecting that. I was expecting something, but I was hoping. I was hoping to get a live person to pray with." Right. Right. I, I would say, you know, it was just like, you know, if I pray with you right now, will you love me? Uh-huh. <laughs> you know that kind of stuff. You know, will right, uh, right, right, Jesus right. come down and save me? I, I had so much material waiting for this you guy. Gonna, you were going to torture him. Yeah, I was going to torture him, just like those telemarketers who say your windows is bad. You know, uh-huh. <laughs> I said I'm looking out my window right now. They're perfect. What are you talking about? My windows are bad. You know that kind of stuff. But anyway, that was right. something. But they they they've called me a few times since, wanting to pray. And, okay, they uh, know they got a live one. They figure, yeah, you know, maybe yeah. you're just not sold yet. You know, for me, if if someone really could, uh, you know, answer all my questions and you know give me everything I need for 1995, that <laughs> would be a bargain. Yeah, would be a bargain. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it would be a bargain. Yeah, but no one can. Ain't gonna probably happen. not. Probably no, no not. One, no, no one can do that. So what's been else going on with you? Well, you know, I have a, a thing that I, I wanted to mention uh, the, for f- a few weeks. Um, I, I don't know if you remember when we were kids, there was this thing called an Estes rocket. It was like a model rocket that uh, people would build. They were kind of maybe like a foot or 18 inches tall. It'd be like a cardboard tube. And they had these solid... Uh, rocket fuel engines that you would put in them. Did and you'd anybody, buy them you know, at the hobby these? shop? you buy them, yeah, at, the buy them at the hobby shop? Right, exactly. And you glue them together and put the stickers on, and then they have like an actual uh, battery-operated ignition thing that you, like a, you know, a fuse that you stick up into the, into the, uh, the, the rocket engine. Yeah, and, I, I remember these, yes. Right. I so, remember I, I bought one, but I never finished it because I got too high on the glue. Yeah, yeah, I, I understand. Well, my neighbors had had those, a, a couple of my neighbors that were my age, and I was fascinated by them. And I, I you know, of course, I didn't have the, that kind of thing, and if I had it, you know, nobody was going to take me to, to, to shoot it off. But I would always try to get my, my neighbor to, to take me with him to, so I could just see him shoot his off. And somehow I, I never could. So that was a little bit of an engram, you know, a little bit of a, 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 a an unfulfilled uh, yearning that I had as a child. So when Daniel, my son, was was a child, I saw that whole kit in the hobby shop, oh. and I bought it. It had two rockets and the launch system and the everything that you needed. Just had to buy a couple of packs of of the the solid engines. So I bought some of those, and but he was probably three when I did this, so that's too young. <laughs> Right. For two, that's too, you know, too dangerous, sophisticated for a three-year-old. So I kind of put it on the side. Well, so I was cleaning out my office uh, during this, uh, you know, this lockdown. And I ran across that, uh, that kit that had never been taken out of the box. So now my wow. son is 21. And I uh, thought, wow, I kind of missed that, uh, that opportunity there. And, you know, once again, I've, you know, I, I, I didn't get to have the, the Estes rocket experience. But then... Turns out both of my kids are in the house now. So I thought, well, son of a bitch, before they go away to school, I'm going to build that fucking rocket and we're going to go and shoot this thing. Um, so, you know, what? it has uh, go ahead. No, uh, no, go ahead. I was going to say, so 
you know, you have to glue the, uh, the, the, the fins on it and, you know, put it together and assemble it. And uh, um, it has a parachute, a plastic parachute that you fold up and put inside of the nose cone and, uh, you know, a launch pad and everything. So we, we made a plan. We went out uh, a couple of weeks ago and found uh, the biggest open space in New Orleans that doesn't have any trees in it, which was right on the corner of the, the uh, UNO campus right there on uh, Elysian Fields and Leon C. Simon. And uh, I thought, well, these rockets are what, like, uh, you know, 18 years old at this point. They may not work. You know, I don't know if the, what the shelf life of these things are, but we'll, let's give it a shot. So all four of us went out there and, uh, man, damned if we didn't have three perfect flights of this fucking Estes rocket that must go, I don't know, 650, 700 feet up in the air. And, and right at the end of it, the, 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 the engine has like a, it, the last thing it does is it has, it throw, pushes air out of the top and pushes that nose cone off. And then the, the, uh, parachute deploys and it floats back down to earth and we had three successful uh launches and 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 recoveries of that rocket it was quite thrilling i was like yeah it's you wouldn't believe how excited i was to to have done this manny you're pretty bored aren't you well you know again it was this was a one of those things you know they say that having children gives you a second bite of the apple at uh your own childhood, you know, things that didn't go the way you wanted them to go. When you were a child, you have a chance to relive those same experiences, but f from a, a position where you have more control and it can be very healing. Who says and, this? Well, people say, you know, it's been said, uh, <laughs> you know, as our president says, uh, many people say it. Um, uh, but, you know, in fact, I've, I've found that to be true in many, uh, many different respects. You know, what about that, the rape, though, as a child? Do you find that to be true? Well, that's what I'm saying. By, by, by uh, you know, making sure my children didn't get raped, it's sort of healing for me, you know? Okay. So uh, it's never too late, Manny. Well, okay. just wanted to share that with the nation. Those Estes rockets are still fun. Even when you're in your 50s, man. And so is you, model glue. It's still fun after all these years. It's not as much fun as it used to be when we were kids. I think they changed the formula, but, uh, you know. So when did you buy these kits? So you bought them when Daniel was like two, so that was what? Right, yeah, like in the, in the 90s, you know. No, no, excuse me, in the early 2000s. That's when yeah, it was. Yeah, early 2000s. So, yeah. so yeah. The model, it was the same tube of glue? No, I, they didn't come with glue. I had to go buy some glue oh, uh, to, okay. to put it together. But I think they changed that formula when we were like, you know, when we were maybe 12 or so, somewhere around there. Yeah. It seems like, they, seems like it was, wasn't as good after that because I didn't have any models, but I did have the model glue. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Rags and bags, baby. Well, listen, let's introduce our guest. Yes, yes, okay. yes. Because yeah. he's exciting so, to me. He is. He is. He's, he's had a, a tremendous career. It's a tremendous life. He's a big fan of the podcast. In fact, um, when I texted him to invite him on the podcast, he, he got back to me after a couple of hours and he said, you won't believe it. Uh, when the text came, I was riding in my car 
and I was had already listened to one of your podcasts, the uh, the Harold Brown episode. Oh yeah. And then I was I was listening to the uh, the Ingrid Lucia pod uh, episode when your text arrived. It's like uh, okay, very good, man. I I love that you're you know the the again the Trouble Men podcast is is folding in on itself. Kismet. So, it must be kismet. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, there you go. I like the, I like the the language, Manny. So. Our guest, he's, a, he's an itinerant blues man. He uh, comes from uh, West Orange, New Jersey, uh, but he's been through Colorado, Austin, Chicago, Florida, before he came to New Orleans. He's a singer, band leader, a harmonica player, accordion player. Uh, he's studied with under uh, some, some blues greats like uh, James Cotton and Junior Wells. He's got 10 records out. He has his own band, Jumpin' Johnny's Blues Party, and he plays with the uh, voice of the Wetlands All-Stars. So without further ado, Mr. Jumpin' Johnny Sansone. Welcome, Johnny. Man, I'm blasting off like a Festus Rocket. You got me so excited. <laughs> right on. I'm, All right. I'm going to go like 650, maybe 700 feet on this one. <laughs> okay. All right. You ready? I like the callback already. Let's get going here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, 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 man. Let's, let's, no time like the present, Johnny. So, now, Johnny, um, I know you, I first met you through the guys in the Iguanas, uh, Joe Cabral and Rod Hodges, and turns out you actually knew them before they ever moved to New Orleans and before any of y'all did. You, you guys played in a band together back in Colorado, right? Yeah, well, it's an interesting thing to put together when you consider all these years. But I met Joe uh, when his first year of college, I was going up to do a recording session in Montana. And, I, and back then I played saxophone. And we were playing at the Top Hat in Missoula, Missoula, Montana. And I, I, I'll never forget this, and I know he won't either. Uh, I'm playing saxophone with, with the band, and uh, this kid comes up to me completely covered in mud. I mean, off head to toe, hair, everything. And he says, hey, can I play your saxophone? And I just looked at him and I said, what are you kidding me? <laughs> Well, is this what you people do here? <laughs> so then he says, uh, well, we're going to have a record party later. Come on by. So he tells me where, you know, where he's staying at. And I went by there and he had a bunch of cool records. I think he was 17 years old. And uh, we got to be friends <laughs> at night, but he told me that he'd gone to a, like a mud party or something. I guess that's what they do in Montana. Uh, and they were rolling around in the mud, and then they were going to go hear some music. And I guess you can do shit like that in Montana. I don't know. And uh, and then, yeah. you know, years later, I'm in Fort Collins, Colorado, and he's coming through town and came and stayed with me for a while. Stayed in my house on the couch for a long time. And then um, I met Rod at um, Rod Hodges from the Iguanas. I met him at a place called the Baron Whale at a, a blues jam. We got to be friends. He stayed on my couch for a while. And uh, I can't remember the rest of the story. Couch been crowded up with each Both other. of those guys there. Yeah. I don't know that I put these guys together, but we all ended up in the same pot at one time. And uh, So who was, the, who was the kid covered in mud who stayed at your house? That was Joe Cabral from the Iguanas. The saxophone okay, player. Joe Cabral. Okay, yeah, all right. So he, he's in Missoula, Montana. Yeah, he's a young kid. You know, he's he's 
freshman in college. I think he dropped out right away and moved down, and he stayed with me for a while. And eventually, you know, we all ended up in bands together in Colorado. It's uh, interesting that I was just doing a little uh, uh, texting with a bunch of different people today about the connection between Colorado and, and New Orleans. There's a whole bunch of different people involved in this. You know, about the time that that, uh, that I'd left there, um, the subdudes were just moving up there from uh, from from New Orleans. Um, right. You know, Spencer Bourne. There's all there's a giant. You know, uh, uh, there's a whole bunch of people involved in 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 the transition between these two places. Crazy man, yeah, a continuum, a, a pipeline from uh, from uh, Colorado to New Orleans. Yeah, washboard chairs. I mean, we, there's a whole bunch of guys. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What? Well, yeah, they know him from from up there too. That's 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 very interesting, man. Um, well, getting back earlier in in in, in your uh, in your life, something interesting that's that. I was fascinated, uh, like you're a tall drink of water, uh, Manny, Johnny's like, what are you like? Six, four, six, five, something like that. Uh, you use that in uh, one of the other episodes I heard or somebody used it. And I use then, it all the time. Oh, okay. I, I use it all, all right. the time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right. that, Cause you said something like that term terminology is a, is kind of a, a way to be nice about it or something. I am six, four. It's flirty. Like yeah. Okay. Six, four. And, you 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 got to Colorado on a on a, uh, a swimming scholarship. You were like an Olympic level swimmer. Yeah, uh, when I was in high school, you know, I, I was I grew up around pools when I was a kid. My father had a swim club, and uh, you know, I came up as a swimmer. My brother was a championship swimmer, and uh, the funny thing about that is, uh, you know, I, I could have pretty well pretty much went to any college that I wanted to. And, and I was such a dumbass back then. I thought my best friend was going to Colorado State University and he was telling me how cool it was out there. So I applied and I got in and I got a full scholarship and I packed up all my shit, 17 years old, and I drive out. And then he drops out and drives back to New Jersey where, where we were from. And uh, so I'm out there, you know, what happened to my buddy? And uh, yeah, that's how I, how I ended up there. And uh, the interesting thing is, I thought it was Tommy Malone or somebody was telling me that they went to the, the, the CSU pool and my name is still on the pool because I, I still have the school record and the pool record and everything. Uh, my name will always be there because they don't have men swimming anymore, so nobody can ever go faster than me. So that's <laughs> something nice to have nice. when I go back. Yes, yes. So, so as a swimmer, did you shave all your body hair? Uh, yeah, but just for nationals, for the last thing. Which one, one of my big psych-out deals for me was that I had a big, long beard and really long hair, and I, and I, and I could still beat everybody. So this was like the, the really cool thing for me. It used to piss everybody off, and... Um, because they would all shave their heads and their eyebrows and everything, and I'd have, like, a big beard and shit, you know, and I would still kick their ass, you know. So for me, that was, like, the big thing. Until I went to the national championships, I didn't do any of that stuff. Then I shaved my body, but I didn't cut my hair. I put it in a bathing cap. 
Now, what was your what was your best? Were you better at the butterfly, the freestyle, oh, the breath? What was yes. your best? No, I specialize. Your, your best stroke. I specialize. I still swim as much as I can, almost every day if I can. But uh, I, I specialize in a hundred and two hundred yard breaststroke and the medley relay. I was the breaststroker on the medley medley relay. Now, were you a smoker? No, no, never smoked. I smoked a lot of weed. Uh, back then, but um, about halfway through the season, I would quit, and and then I would do brownies and shit. You know, but this was back in the, in the seventies. Yeah, and that's when mm. the AAU pretty much ran like all the amateur athletics, right? Yeah, well, I was in the Western Athletic Conference, the WAC, right? UAC. But if you wanted to go like to the Olympics, you had to go to these AAU trials, didn't you? Yes. Yeah. And the AAU was fucked. They were fuckers <laughs> because they Get kept, on it, they man. Kept, it's kind of like it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, I remember the AAU. They were fucked because they were making all the money that should have gone to the athletes. But of course, but since you're amateurs, they don't. You don't get paid, right? Well, swimming was like what, the bottom of the food chain. I mean, I remember being, you know, we'd be around the football players and stuff, and um, they got taken care of. You know, we didn't really get, yeah. we didn't get anything, um, you know. Yeah. So as a swimmer in the 70s, you looked up to like Mark Spitz or somebody like that? Yeah, when I went to the national championships in Long Beach, that you know, they used to have that natatorium in Long Beach. It's not there anymore. But yeah. I, sw I swam there uh, for national championships in 76, I think it was. And, uh, yeah, he was giving out the awards, so I got to meet him. That was, yeah, I mean, it was, oh. sure, it was a big thing back then. Yeah. Oh, yeah, fuck yeah, man. What, seven, seven times, six-time uh, gold medal winner or something? Crazy. Yeah. Well, yeah. so Johnny, so you didn't you didn't wind up pursuing uh, swimming much beyond that, but the blues were the was, was where your heart really really was. So you hook up with James Cotton and Junior Wells. How do you wind up studying with those guys? Uh, put me well, in that situation. Well, to pull it back a little bit further, I think it's important to talk about the the thing about getting to Fort Collins, Colorado, and walking around in this town. And seeing all, you know, there wasn't a lot of music back there. There was a lot of music in Boulder and Denver. And I used to walk around and like carry like a Sonny Boyle Williamson record, Helen Wolf record or something, and see if anybody would like, you know, recognize it. And and that's how I met some uh -huh. of the guys that I ended up putting bands together with, because they'd say, "Hey, man, you, I got I Muddy Waters." You know, we start talking about shit. And at that time. Alligator Records was sending all of their people from Chicago. Everybody came through on their way to, to you know, out to California, and everybody played. We had a big place called Sam's Old Town Ballroom. And uh, so all the acts played there, and I never missed anything. Um, you know, I wasn't old enough to get in, but I snuck in, you know. And, uh, and, uh, and I insisted on meeting 
everybody that I could. And I, I you know, to this day, I do the same thing. I, 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 I need, I need information. I go after it. And, uh, you know, I knew who Junior Wells was. I had all these records, you know. So when I went down there, and and they were really good guys. They were, you know, they were they were very helpful when I asked questions. And uh, you know, Cotton said to me, "If you come to Chicago, here's my number." You know, I'm I'm like, you know, 18 years old. So it was, it was a big thing for me. Nice. And, and back then, you know, I know your listeners. No, you are a lot of musicians. I mean, back then, we, there was no YouTube or any bullshit like that. If you didn't know somebody that could play harmonica, you weren't going to learn how to do it right or anything. Because it's not like, you know, you can look at somebody playing guitar and you can watch what they're doing. They're bending the strings, they're pulling here, they're, you know, uh, how they set their different controls or all, all these things. When you're playing harmonica, you're looking at the guy going, well, I can't see anything. I don't know what he's doing. And, and until somebody <laughs> says right. that's not correct, then you don't know what it is. And that's what those guys did for me. Right. They set me straight. There's a certain kind of mathematics that uh, you harmonica players use. I've, I've seen like you and Howard. Uh, what's that guy? That we Howard were Levy. In, uh, the Howard Levy, yeah. like Howard. You guys talk about, you know... Playing in certain positions and and yeah. you know cross positions and 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 the the way the way a, a harmonica player's mind works is is it you know I just kind of glaze over like a, a dog being explained uh, you know the, the the metric system or something but but all that stuff really makes a difference as to your ability to play certain licks I mean it's it only lays down a certain way right. Well, first off, Howard Levy is like from, I don't know, he's from outer space. The guy is like, I don't even understand yeah. how he does this shit. <laughs> we were in Hawaii with him, and I was telling Rod and Joe, this guy can play like Mozart on a 10-hole marine band in like five, ten keys, you know? And I don't, under, I don't know how the fuck he's doing it. Well, to, he's a great piano player, and he says that he pictures in his mind what the notes are from visualizing the piano and then he can find those notes now in the last uh, a new thing has happened in in the last 10 15 years where the the diatonic harmonica has be become chromatically accessible with overblow notes so when you you bend a note a half step a whole step like a slide guitar would do now you can overblow notes and you can sharpen the notes so you can play sharps and flats on a, one of those little harmonicas. Now you got all of this stuff. I don't know how to do it and I really don't care to do it uh, because I'm old school and to me it sounds like somebody's playing a kazoo when you're hitting notes that don't really sound like they should be there. Now, any of your listeners, I apologize for that because I know it is a really beautiful thing and it's incredible it's not my thing at all, you know. But uh, what you were getting sure, to sure. also is like we play different positions uh, on, so you, you would play, you know, one step below whatever key you're in to play third position, which would usually be in a minor tune. Um, you play cross harp or you play first position, which is the position you're in, which is like, you know, Bob Dylan and Neil Young and all that kind of stuff. 
Yes, my, I start to glaze over when, when people talk about it. <laughs> but, but it is fascinating that, that you guys think like that. But that's the kind of stuff that, uh, that those masters were able to, to show you in person that you couldn't ever get from listening to a record. And, and then there's all this other stuff that goes along with it. I mean, that, you know, trying the electric harmonica, there's all this techniques of getting overloaded sounds so that you can have a horn-like sound. And, you know, I don't want to dig too far back, but when I was much younger, when I was eight years old, my, my father was a sax player, and he played with Dave Brubeck in, in World War II. And, you know, I went to a concert wow. with my dad, one of the first times he ever took me to see anything like this, and went backstage, and it was two generations of Brubeck, and Dave Brubeck's son's band was playing, and they had this guy playing harmonica with them, and I was just blown away by the guy because I'm only like, you know, 11 years old or 12 or something. And, uh, you know, I was trying to learn how to play. And he, uh, Mad Cat Ruth, we're, you know, we're great friends now, but uh, he gave me, he wrote down all this stuff, try to find this microphone, buy these records, all this stuff. I would have never gotten any of that information you know, as a young kid, not in suburbia, I don't know where to go. I don't know who to talk to. And, you know, the, the stuff, the information was there. You just have to go find it. Do you think, uh, do you think uh, being a swimmer and having the good lung capacity helped you with your heart playing? Huge, huge. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and also the fact that, you know, I was a swimmer in, in Colorado, you know, we were in the high altitude. So like back, yeah, back, the altitude, yeah. So, so when you when you like were gonna qualify for national championships when you were a swimmer, they gave you they shaved some time off so that you could add time to your time to qualify for depending on how high you were. There wasn't that many uh, places that were higher than where we were. There wasn't a lot of colleges that were you know major colleges that were higher than you know University of Denver. Uh, for uh, uh, CSU, so you know they they take take some time off of that because you know when you get to sea level, all of a sudden it's like shaving down. When you shave your body and jump in a pool, you feel like an eel. Like it, it, you feel everything. Every your skin just is can feel everything. It's amazing. It's not something I'll ever do again. But we only did it once a year, so yeah. that, you know for the championship. Yeah. No, let me ask you something, man. Yeah. Okay, so a heart, a heart player, you know, is kind of like a lead guitarist in many ways. You do these solos and stuff like that, right? Yes. You know, so are you, uh, uh, are you getting laid as much as the lead guitar players are? Uh, yeah. <laughs> the, the thing was... I. The guy that has to be the front man is always the harmonica player. Because what what you can do with your mouth, uh, are are women attracted to that? Okay, I see where well, you're going there, Manny. Well, well, well Manny, uh, you know, I didn't want to get into this subject, but I did. There, there is uh, this video on how to play the <laughs> harmonica that that Rick Astrin put out, and he's a great California harmonica player. And, and in there, he says. He makes one point where he says, you see what I can do with 10 holes. Imagine what I can do with one. 
I would never use a line like that, but I think that will answer your question. All right. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, Manny, on, on that note, this seems like a good time to, uh, to get a refill, don't you think? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So, uh, so Johnny, you know, as always, uh, we, we like to take a little break and, and refresh our cocktails. And, uh, you know, we offer we invite the nation to do that. And you should as well. And uh, uh, we'll be right back. We'll be right back. And we're back. Back with Mr. Manny Chevrolet. I am Renee Coleman. Back with our guest, Mr. Jumpin' Johnny Sansone. Now, Manny, uh, Johnny being a, a listener uh, to the podcast already, he's familiar with, uh, with our, our great uh, product that we're affiliated with. But why don't you go ahead and just tell the na- remind the nation uh, about, uh, about the great Velo Bar CBD. Well, Johnny and the nation, you, we've been talking about it for weeks now. It's the Velo Bar. And Johnny, the Velo Bar is a CBD oil protein bar. Dude, I love them. (laughs) You love them? You love both flavors? They come in dark chocolate and peanut butter, and they have 25 milligrams of CBD oil per bar, the perfect dose to take the edge off whatever you're dealing with right now. And we're all dealing with a lot of shit, Johnny. We are. We're dealing with a lot of shit. And who doesn't need relief right now? Everyone. I do. There. You need relief. Yes, I know I you do. do uh, you, you're so tired of just sitting at home tuning your bass. I'm sure. You know. <laughs> you know. But this, this Velo Bar Johnny is a plant-based protein bar from superfood ingredients like pumpkin seeds, hemp hearts, chia seeds, and it makes a great breakfast bar. It's a great bar to have after a workout or maybe you know, working on your yard and stuff like that. And Johnny, right now, Johnny, if you go to VelobarCBD.com and order by using the discount code TROUBLEDMEN15, you'll get 15% off your order. Already 15% off your order. And the shipping is free. And you know what, Renee? We love the free shipping. Love the free shipping. Yeah, Nation, check it out. It's great. And in fact, uh, I was told by the CEO just a few days ago that the new products will be coming out, some special products that the Nation has been waiting for. And yes. it's going to be out soon. I can't give you an exact ETA, but these new products from Velo Bar uh, will be out soon. And you're going to love them even more than probably these bars, I'm sure. If you're into micro-dosing and all that kind of bullshit, it's going to be great. All right? Uh, So listen, Nation, go to VeloBarCBD.com, make your order, use the promo code TROUBLEDMAN15, get 15% off with free shipping. Check it out. It's great. Renee? Yes. And, and as always, uh, you know, if you want to support the Trouble Men podcast directly, you can uh, jump on those uh, show notes. Uh, there's a link there or the, you know, on the, on the Facebook page and you can uh, help support the podcast. And I want to give a shout out to Miss Gogo Borgerding, a former guest who uh, who uh, chipped in and to support the podcast. She had such a good time on the podcast. She said, well, let me let me help these guys keep this all going. So uh, thank you, Gogo. And, uh, you know, uh, you could uh, take her lead. Excellent. Can, can, I, can I plug something I'm working on? 
Sure. Absolutely, plug away. Well, I've been working on a acoustic record from my home, and it's real laid back. And okay. I think I'm going to call it Live from the Velo Bar. <laughs> okay, okay, that's all. Just having fun. <laughs> All right. Well, you get, okay, you get good, it? Very good. Live I was going to say, you might want. Okay. The Velo Bar. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's like the Circle Bar, but the Velo Bar. No, I, okay, I like we got it. We can move on. Sorry about that. So, so you're taken under the wing of all these, these uh, blues masters. Um, you develop your craft. You're out there. Uh, you know, playing with a bunch of other band leaders, uh, you, you wind up playing with John Lee Hooker, uh, you know, uh, Ronnie Earl. You, 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 you pay your dues out there on the road. So the, the blues circuit, you have any, any uh, you know, I, I did that a little bit with like Johnny Adams and Nappy Brown and Wayne Bennett. Yeah. So I kind of know what the blues circuit's like. You, ha- you have any, any uh, particular memories of being out there with those other band leaders? Man, there's so many, it's, it's hard to even think about. I know that um, I was able to get with the, the guys that I never thought I would play with, the, the, the people that created this music, you know, Chicago, Electric Chicago Blues. Um, when I was out with Ronnie Earl, we, you know, we were on tour with uh, Robert Jr. Lockwood and Jimmy Rogers and Pine Top Perkins and, like, all of these different people, I, I just like, I, it's thought to back to myself back then, if it doesn't get any better than this, this is good enough for me. You know, this is like a, an incredible dream, right. but, but it, it never stopped. You know, it, it's still like that. I hope the rest of my life is like that too. But, um, I mean, I, you know, I couldn't pick out anyone. W- one thing I was, I was talking to somebody the other day, about I have a 1957 Fender basement amp with all original speakers and everything. I was born in 1957. I've had this amp since I was maybe 20 years old. And um, mm. we go to do this show and we're backing up Bo Diddley. And Bo Diddley walks over and looks at the amps and he says, I'm playing out of that one. And he turned up every knob <laughs> on, on that amp as far as it goes. And I'm a kid, and I'm looking at Bo Diddley, I'm thinking, okay, bye-bye, original speakers, that's the end of this, you know? And this was a long time ago. Uh-huh. And I didn't even think, I mean, this is just a quick little story, but I didn't even think yeah. about it, and years later I found out, you know, he did fine. He sounded killer, and everything was great. And I found out later that that's how those guys used to do that. They, they controlled everything on their guitars. So, you know, they weren't... The, the, the volumes and tone controls were adjusted. They just wanted the amp to do everything it could do. And that's the way it things were done. It up all the way. Everything. Wow, cool, man. Every, every single knob as far as it goes, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, I, you know, I mean, I didn't know that. I didn't know. I thought that, that's the end of my amp. Right. It's designed to be run like that, though, I guess. Yeah. Well, because this one goes to 11. <laughs> um, 
So, so you know, you 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 pay your dues. You know, you 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 do your ten thousand hours out there in the in the trenches, and then you make it down to New Orleans. And uh, you know, you 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 already had been a band leader with the uh, the Jumpin' Johnny's Blues Party. Now, this is a good time for me to ask you, where did the jumping moniker come from? How did you become Jumpin' Johnny? Well, we, I left that name way way behind and it kind of it's, it's almost insulting to me now that people still have to have that but do you remember like uh john king cleary he he lost that name too but okay what happens is when i'm in college and i'm a ball of energy i'm an athlete i don't really play that great so you know to get people to come to the gigs i'm the front man singer i would like do backflips off the piano and jump over the bass player's <laughs> head and, and jump into the crowd and do all kind of crazy shit. So everybody would say, let, you know, let, let's go. That jumping guy's playing tonight. Let's go see him. And we're, we're the jumping guy and jumping and everybody jump, jump, and uh, we're jumping Johnny. So people start calling me jumping Johnny. That name wow. ended up being this name that I couldn't shake. So I, accepted it and then it, it we carried it on but the problem was that years later i find out there's like three other jumping johnny harmonica players and some of them don't really sound that good you know okay. so then i realized what sunny boy williamson went through when there was a couple of sunny boys you know well which is the real right. one so you yeah. had to get rid of that had to, had to okay. drop that name so now i dropped that name years and years ago i think around 1980 something late 80s okay well let me just tell you now that it is going to appear in the title of this episode so <laughs> well you know it's Good funny luck. sometimes people think they get a little extra out of that like oh somebody won't know my last name because i used to just be jumping johnny and if you say johnny sanson they're not going to know who that is so you know right. i understand jazz fest was one of the first ones was was hard to, to drop it from because they just kept putting it on there even though I asked them not to. You know, sometimes, Johnny, you know, it's it doesn't, it, it, you know, you don't choose a name. The name chooses you. So That's exactly what uh, happened. You know, you, you'll always be, you'll always be skipping Johnny to me. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, I feel good about that, Manny. Thank you. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm not sure that it has the same cachet as Jumpin' Johnny, but, uh, you know, hey, it's skipping worth a out, shot, man. Skipping out on, you know, skipping out Johnny. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, so, so in New Orleans, you, you really start your, your recording artist career. And, you know, so you've you've put out like ten records on under your own name, and and you've just gotten better and better. So you you put out a record that I I played on right after Katrina. It was a Poor Man's Paradise, and that was the the first one that had been produced by uh, Anders Osborne, I guess, who you had become uh, friends with when you were in the Voice of the Wetlands, which is kind of a, a super group. It was Dr. John and, and uh, Cyril Neville, Johnny Vodakovich, former guest was the drummer, a uh, bunch of other people. George Porter. And, yeah, I'm still in that band. Yes. Yeah. Right, 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 right. And I'm, and, sitting and in the, I'm sitting in the living room where we recorded that record together, and I'm looking right at the spot where you were hanging out while we were cutting it. <laughs> 
Nice, nice. And that record wound up winning uh, all kinds of, uh, you know, Blues Foundation awards and, and other awards. And, and actually the, the title song, Poor Man's Paradise, wound up being kind of a, a standard in a way. Yeah, it was interesting because uh, the sub dudes came out with the same title but a different song. Hmm. Did you know about that? I didn't because I don't think theirs had the same traction as yours did. Uh, because didn't that, didn't that happen for the iguanas too with the sub dudes? Well, the sub dudes and the iguanas, uh, when be before uh, Joe and Rod had moved to New Orleans, they actually co-wrote a song with those guys that, that uh, late at night. So that was a song that they wrote together. And, oh, okay. and each, each band recorded it on, on their, their, their own records, and the versions are slightly different, but it's because it's the same song that they wrote together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Um, so, so that was a, a, you know, you had a, a bunch of successful records before that, but, but that Poor Man's Paradise sort of started a, a, a string of recordings, which uh, after that, it, it, you had uh, this, I love this title, and it was a very successful record, The Lord is Waiting and the Devil is Too. Yeah, yeah, that one did really good. But let me pull back to right on uh, Crescent City Moon because that's when I signed with okay. Rounder. Okay, and, and that's a record I produced myself here in town and had a bunch of uh, local people on it. And um, that's when I, you know, they had the Offbeat Music Awards, and I won everything they had. And then I was on the cover of Offbeat Magazine, and I thought. Oh man, I'm on my way. This is great. I finally broke into something. You know, the, the town recognized who I am and what I do, and this is great. And, you know, six months later, well, none of that shit meant anything, but, but at least I understood that I could get something going, and I got signed with Rounder. And, you know, these things have a way of catapulting. But then years went by and nothing happened, and I kind of got left behind. And, and that's when the next record. Uh, well, I did another record for Rounder that was a Watermelon Patch, and I had, um, you know, John Hyatt's Gone a Rhythm Section on there. <laughs> that was really cool. And, uh, and then um, got the next, yeah, then the next one was uh, um, Poor Man's Paradise, and, and then The Lord is Waiting was a really weird thing for me to do because I was working with John Fole and Anders at the same time doing a trio and, and we were bringing all these songs in together uh, on a weekly songwriter thing and and I, I was just challenging Anders because he was just coming out of rehab and we were trying to like make some shit happen so said so everybody brings songs so each week we'd bring a few songs in each, and we play them for the first time in front of anybody. And uh, a lot of those songs from American Patchwork that Anders had was just blowing us away. We didn't, you know, we didn't know that, you know, of course we knew he was a great songwriter, but it had been a while. And the same thing was happening for me. People, those guys were looking at me, well, what are these songs? Where'd you get that? So Anders right away said, well, we should, you know, we should do a record with you. And the original idea was for Anders to play drums and John Fole to play guitar and do a trio record. Uh -huh. And um, I'm not exactly sure how, how it all went down, but 
we ended up getting Stanton Moore to play drums, and we wanted to go after like a Hound Dog Taylor sound, which was really stripped down. And he, Anders said, I don't want you to play any other instruments. Uh, I just play harmonica and sing. And he was right, because that, that was probably my best-selling record. It was all concentrated on, on, on nailing that stuff. And when we got in the studio with just those two guys, they, they raised the bar so high that I thought to myself, I remember standing in their vocal booth saying, man, I got to keep up with these guys. They are heavy. They are seriously right. at this thing. Nice. And I said, I got I to gotta come up to them and I got to try and pass them with what I have. And, and it worked. You know, the record did really right. well. Yeah. And that's that's when you kind of developed uh, the, for the first time that I saw this this kind of uh, uh, southern preacher style kind of blues shout delivery, which which you know you're you're that's a thing. It's it's so powerful to to see you do that, and, and I know crowds really responded to seeing you do that. Well, you know, to me, you know, speaking off the top of my head, really didn't. <laughs> prepared his ship for this but the the concept of what blues and is all about is demanding uh, the some of the greatest blues songs were telling you how it's going to be this is what's going to happen and and just taking control of the situation and 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 putting everything you have out and uh, at that time in my life you know I just said I, it, this is either going to happen or I, I might, you know, I might end up killing myself trying to make it happen. So, uh, you know, uh, there's, we just went all the way. I mean, that, that's what I did. And then I it eventually realized, yes, people want to see you sacrifice yourself on stage. And we, it worked and uh, I still do it. But Right. I also got to a point where I realized that there is a place to go that is is almost like uh, I don't know uh, some kind of a trans trans state that will transcendental. Yes. That that really doesn't matter anymore. All you're doing is going to this place to take you somewhere, and uh, you know I remember being in Switzerland at a festival and getting off stage and this writer from Living Blues or one of those magazines said to, came over and said, do you know what you just did? And I said, yeah, I did my show. And he said, no, you know what you just did? And I was like, what are you talking about? And he said, you look at these people. Look at what you did to them. And I don't, I didn't, you know, I don't look, I don't know what happened. I, I it came out of the thing and, you know, walked off and he wrote a really great article about the whole thing. And you know, all these things help a lot, but that's not the target. The idea is to get to that spot where, where you've, you can put yourself in that position in your heart and your mind and stuff and go to that place. And there's, you know, John Mooney used to really move me with that. I, I remember standing next to him. He, did, he doesn't know where he is. He's just uh, you know, incredible. Right. Yes, it's transcendent. Yes, and and it is religious in a in a respect, you know. So so when you're dealing with this material, it's a, and and then you're there, in you know, you're it's a presence. It's you know, prayer is. I always say, you know, prayer is time plus attention uh, plus something else. And uh, yeah, um, Manny, have you ever and, gone to that place? 
No, I don't pray. I don't believe in any of that shit. <laughs> but Manny's taking drugs, and you can get there with drugs too. So you know, it's, he, he knows what you're talking about. Yeah, we're all talking about the same. We're all speaking the same language. <laughs> well, so you followed that record up with uh, with the the record that came out a couple of years ago, just your most recent record, Hopeland, which is another. Oh, uh, oh no, no, I had, two, I had two records in between. Uh, okay. After that, after Lord's Waiting, I did um, uh, once it gets started, and that turned out to be like my favorite record that has most, as far as the writing goes, and you know, write, wrote all the songs on all of these records. And that had what turned out to be kind of a hit the night the pie frac- factory burned down. It got nominated for song of the year at the blues music awards, which was a huge thing for me because it wasn't really a blues song. There was other much bluesier songs on there, but it got played constantly on XM radio and uh, and people didn't even know what the Hugh Biggs was you know people all over the world listen to song they don't know what it is it's like smokestack lightning what does it mean you know? right so so that was a really big thing and then there was a uh, lady and levy uh, which mm. you know was a really cool record I had Ivan Neville on there and my my touring band played on it, and Joe Cabral did the horns on it, and okay. Anders played guitar. And then, uh, yeah, then the most recent one uh, was uh, Hopeland and Velomar yes. live from Velomar. <laughs> right, right. So on Hopeland, you had Anders <laughs> once again, and you had uh, the North Mississippi All-Stars, you know, Luther and Cody Dickinson. Yeah. His dad, of course, was Jim Dickinson, who I worked a lot with in, in, in uh, the Panther Burns and, and other, you know, Memphis settings. Yeah. But, uh, and, and you had, you recorded this uh, at, at Trina Schumacher's uh, uh, studio and, you know, the, yeah. uh, the great uh, Grammy Award winning, uh, uh, you know, engineer Trina Schumacher. How great is she, man? She, she mixed that last Mooney record that I played on and holy cow, she did it. She, she did it just by herself and sent the tracks and every one of them sounded fucking fantastic the first time you heard it. Uh, yeah, there was a brand new studio that opened up in Mobile, Alabama, and uh, I was very excited about working over there, and I wanted to do something different, and uh, really wanted to get, you know, I think each record needs to move into a different sound, so I went more of a songwriter kind of Delta sound on that, and it was really cool because everybody in the room were like producers, you know, so... Right. We, we didn't have, when we were deciding who's going to play what, it was kind of like, well, uh, Anders said, well, I'm just going to play guitar. I might play something else, but I, you know, I don't play bass. There's two great bass players here, both of the brothers. And of course, Anders, Anders ended up playing bass and ended up being great with, you know, playing bass. And, uh, and, uh, I, John Cleary played, put him on piano on a couple tracks. Um, but um, it was a real songwriter record, and I'm really proud of it. And working with those guys was great because the ideas that I threw out were really absorbed. And um, like Luther listened to the demos, and at one point, I have a 19. 
59 guild. I'm, I play left-handed, so, you know, I had a 59 uh, arch top guild, hollow body arch top. And mm -hmm. he said, I'm going to use that. And I said, how, how are you going to do that? You're, you don't play left-handed. And he said, no, I want it to sound just like you play it. And he played slide on it upside down. And it was in some weird tune when I wrote it, and he insisted that it was going to be in the same tuning. And I was just, like, really moved by the way that somebody really cared enough to do something like that. And I have this great video of him playing unbelievably upside down playing, and it sounds so great. And, you know, it came out on the record. It was a really moving experience. I mean, these guys are, you know, they're, they're much younger than I am, but they've been – through so much and they're such great players and they know the right shit you know their dad brought them up uh, exposing them to all the the foundational material so you know they may be young in years but they're old souls now that the the thing you brought up about uh, the you being left-handed that's something i wanted to touch on because i know you you play guitar left-handed but then you play accordion but you don't play that left-handed and and then harmonica do you play that left-handed well, those two instruments, you know, it's funny you mention that because old man Doopsy, the original rock and Doopsy played upside down. He played backwards. Did he? Yeah. So when he he played a button accordion, but when he pulled right. when he pulled the bellows, he was pulling with his left hand, which is upside down. So he had it backwards. Okay. Now you can't really play backwards uh i mean accordion is like if you play piano you know the the bottom notes are on the top and the top notes are on the bottom and you go right. up and down and you don't really play backwards on that now the, the interesting thing about harmonica is some of the greatest harmonica players played upside down uh, really uh, yeah paul butterfield little walter a lot of the guys which made it kind of i guess give it a sound kind of like uh, Jimi Hendrix had, you know, that it was something huh. that, um, I don't know if it was out of like, that they just didn't know. I mean, the numbers are on the top. You can look at it. You know, it doesn't make any sense. You play upside down, but yeah, I guess you can play that upside down. Oh, but you don't No. Okay. No, I play, well, I played bass uh, right-handed. Do you? Only because I learned. Only because I could never find a left-handed bass, so I learned how to play, you know, right-handed. Okay. Backwards. Okay. You're yeah. you're answering all my questions. I have have one more line of, of things that that I uh, thing I want to talk about is, uh, and I just found this out. Where's today. Manny? Is he still there? Yeah, I'm here. Hi, right, Manny. I'm just listening. Uh, I just want I want to make sure you're still with me, man. Yeah, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so I, I noticed today that you played on uh, on this this the soundtrack of this movie Blaze, which is uh, a biopic about the great songwriter Blaze Foley. This was uh, an Ethan Hawke uh, directed movie, and uh, and you played on on most of the soundtrack. Yes, and I saw I saw that that movie actually is coming out on Netflix this Sunday. So oh, I'm, really? I'm very much looking forward to hear to seeing that. But tell me about that project. 
Well, man, I was really hoping that um, something really big would happen with that because it was, a, you know, an incredible music movie. It, it was supposed to be all musicians in the, in the movie. It was supposed to be cast that way. And, um, you know, Ethan Hawke had this idea that he was going to just have all these great musicians. And um, I think what ended up happening is that uh, the guy that was casted as supposed to be the harmonica player uh, was an actor. He was the only real actor, and he's a really good friend with all those guys, and they needed him as a solid actor. Um, so he took harmonica lessons. I think I have this right. I'm not sure, but uh, this is the way I remember it. That uh, he, he took harmonica lessons for a while in New York, and then he came down to, to start shooting, and he was supposed to, they wanted to play everything live. They didn't want to overdub. They wanted it to be real natural mm -hmm. sounding. And um, I got a, I was going through some really bad shit at the time, and uh, heroin. I was, You're going through and, heroin. And I, I was, no, I don't. I don't like drugs. But I was. Uh, it was. A, it was a hard thing. And then I was gonna go to Costa Rica and just write songs and hang out. And I had my ticket booked and everything. And uh, people around me knew I was going through some hard stuff. And it was interesting because I got this phone call and this guy says, um, hey man, I got your number. This is Ethan Hawke and I'm in bed and I'm sleeping. I was like, yeah. And I hung up, you know. Because <laughs> I'm like, yeah, all right. And then he calls back and he says, hey man, uh, this is Ethan Hawke. And I said, oh, okay, well, what do you want? And he said, well, I want, you know, I, I got your number from this guy. He says, you're the best guy for the job, and I want you to play harmonica. I was making this movie and stuff. And, um, you know, and I started talking about it. I was like, well, who gave you my number? Well, it came from uh, Charlie Sexton. And I was like, yeah, but I don't know Charlie Sexton. So how did, you know, I'm trying to figure out what's going on. I just figured somebody breaking my balls because they know I'm down on my luck, you know. <laughs> so, you know, about to hang up again, and we started talking about breakups and stuff, and then he's telling me about, you know, all this stuff that he'd gone through, and we started being friends on the phone, you know, and it was pretty interesting. Uh, and and um, Nice. I don't know. I was like, okay, so... If, so you're real? I mean, is this real or am I hungover and I don't know what's happening? <laughs> and, um, yeah, so next thing I know, he's like, yeah, why don't you just come over and see what happens? Because everybody's saying, you know, so I, then I, I find out that it was C.C. Adcock that recommended me for the job. Oh. And then I got over there to where the studio was in Baton Rouge, and I walked in the studio and all the guys were there, and they said, okay, um, we're going to cut a couple tracks right now. I didn't know they were making a record, which turned out to be the soundtrack record for the movie. And uh, Charlie Sexton said, well, you know, just play some, man. Set up your shit, do what you do. And they, oh, this is great, this is great. So, like, next thing I know, they're like, oh, you got the gig, and we need you for this much time. And I and I was like, well, I'm going to Costa Rica. And they said, oh, no, no, man, we need you here. So um, what ended up happening with the movie, I went down 
and they kept the guy who played harmonica, and I stood pretty much out of the screen shot, and every time he was supposed to play, I played. But they wanted to do everything like over and over and over and over, and I'm not that kind of player. Like I, you know, I I got to play with my heart every time, and I I started blowing out harmonicas, and you know it was it was getting difficult because I'm like, man, I got I thought. I didn't realize how these movies work. And, yeah. uh, you know, we, we did, I don't know, it's like four or five days on the thing. And I'm out of shots and everything. And, um, and I'm talking to Ethan about this. And he's like, we got to get a part for you in the movie. And I was like, well, man, everybody says that. <laughs> I've, been like, I've been in like three movies now. I've never actually been in the movie. You know, and so it's right. like. What's you know, the name of the movie? It, it's called Blaze. So, you know, so um, I, you know, I was supposed to be in there and I didn't know. So there was one scene where um, they had some guys. He said, I said, well, I, you know, I play accordion. I can go play it. He said, we don't want you playing harmonica because that won't look right because you sound just like the guy that's playing harmonica. So oh, I played accordion on one little scene where we're in this bar and I'm, I'm an accordion player. And, and they didn't cut me out. And then there was another scene where, uh, it was interesting. Uh, it's, 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 this is really beautiful being truthful about all this stuff when I know all these people are going to hear this. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm at a back porch of this place, and, and, and Ethan says to me, Dude, hey, Johnny, do you smoke cigarettes? I said, No. And he said, Hey, Jim, Jim, give me some cigarettes. And here, here, smoke a cigarette. We're going to come in, we're going to pan in on you smoking a cigarette. Well, little did I know I was going to have to smoke like a whole fucking pack just to get this <laughs> one scene, you know. And then when the movie came out, I went to see it at the theater here in town, and I'm like, oh, there's there there I am. And I take like one puff, and that was the scene. And I'm like, does this how they make fucking movies? I mean, you know, this, this I, I you know this is what I had to go through for this. But anyway, uh. when the thing came out, the trailer came out. And you can Google the trailer right now and watch it. it. It's so great because, like, the opening scene, you can hear the harmonica come in at the very beginning. And it, there's the sweet tone of that stuff that I love so much. I love just the couple of notes that are placed in the right place to pull on your heartstrings. And I was able to pull that off, and I'm really, really proud of it. I'm really proud of the, rec the, 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 the movie and everything, and, and I got to be friends with all those people, and it turned out to be a really great experience for me. Nice, man. Yeah, I can't wait to see that. It's coming out this, this Sunday on Netflix. And man, talk about a tall drink of water that Charlie Sexton and, uh, and Ethan Hawke, man. Between Charlie Sexton and Ethan Hawke in the same room, you can't figure out who you want to fuck first, right? Well, Ethan Hawke is an idiot, man. How can, oh, any, no, no. how can anyone <laughs> fucking leave Uma Thurman? You know, you know, Manny, that's when I was talking earlier about it, I was going through a breakup. That's what we talked about. Yeah, I mean, I didn't expect, you know, this 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 guy to be so kind to me. I mean, he's, he's, he's turned out to be a really nice guy. He broke up with Uma to uh, direct What's-Her-Name's video in the 90s. I can't remember. Listen, I'm done, guys. It's over. I got to go to bed.
Right on, right. Manny. Well, uh, Johnny, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, and uh, thank you, Manny. And and uh, you know, Manny, over and out. As always, in the troubled nation, we'd like to say, uh, trouble never ends, but the struggle continues. Thank you. Good night.
for you to choose.